0: This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold.
1: You're listening to the Faith 2020 Podcast, helping you see 2020 clearly through the lens of faith. Now here's your host, Michael Ware.
0: Every episode, from now on, I just open it up with some smoky. (laughs) Hey, this is the Faith 2020 Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Ware. As you might have picked up since last episode, uh, this uh, 2020 race has swung pretty significantly in the favor of former Vice President joseph biden Uh, we gave you a preview that this was going to happen on the last episode and we didn't just say like you know biden could do well we told you watch out for massachusetts we said look out for minnesota we said biden can win texas by five to seven points we said biden is gonna do much better in california than what polls have been suggesting uh And he he did basically all of those things. Uh, And so now we head into this. The first four states, it's like, you know, the pacing of it makes it feel like you're letting the runners get their legs under them. You know, Super Tuesday is like, you know, a sprint. And now we're in like the gauntlet portion. Like energy has been exerted. Most of the contenders have had to drop out at this point. And now, just when you think, oh, I'm on like a home stretch, now, instead of just running, uh you, you got to swim, uh, you got arrows shooting out of walls at you, you know, like, it's just, it's just, uh it's going to be, in some ways, a war of attrition. I will say, this race could mostly be over in two weeks. Uh, Florida is a huge state. Biden has significant advantages in the state already, and I think Bernie has a record that's been discussed a bit in the debates. But I think that March 15th debate is really going to lay out some some issues where Bernie's going to have a hard time explaining himself to, to voters in Florida, I think. But before we get there, let's talk briefly about these upcoming states on Tuesday. And I say briefly because we have an interview I just love the conversation. It's a bit a bit longer than our usual interviews. And instead of cutting the interview short, I'm going to sort of cut my, my opening comments short just to try and keep this episode uh, under an hour. And so, look, uh, folks can, I mean, ju- just to recap a bit of what's happened, Biden now heads into this week ahead in delegates, which... Prior to last week, no one thought people thought it was about him potentially being able to limit Sanders' lead in some way, not that he could head into what should be a good stretch for him uh, with a dele- with an already existing delegate lead and so that's critical. Bloomberg is out he's endorsed Biden. Kamala Harris has endorsed biden uh, we We've already discussed this. Amy Klobuchar, Pete Buttigieg have endorsed Biden. Elizabeth Warren is out of the race. She has not made an endorsement. And that'll be a subject of a lot of speculation and interest. And and really, I don't have any significant opinions on that. She's going to do what she's going to do. I want to be surprised if she waits to see how this plays out for a week or two. uh, She can sort of Lock it in for Biden if Biden uh, looks like he's going to win, anyways, <laughs> um, or if there is some kind of major moment, you know, where Biden has a bad debate s- somehow. You know, Florida doesn't isn't this the sort of uh, big win state that it could be for him? Maybe Warren wants to hold out, you know, hold out if not, so that she could endorse Bernie, so that she's not viewed as someone who sort of. Line things up for Bernie, but honestly, I I don't know. Warren is someone who I was convinced she was sincere about super PACs, and I you know I think she was, but she changed her her, her approach there. On reclaiming hope, that Substack dot com, I offered some post uh, Super Tuesday analysis, including reasons why I thought Elizabeth Warren lost. Would urge you to read that. I mean, it's pretty significant. Um quite a few words on the subject and so uh would urge you to go there also answered some questions from some of y'all on uh from twitter at reclaiminghope.substack.com so would urge you there the other thing is i'm not sure i don't think we've discussed it on the podcast uh but earlier or i guess it was late last month i released a report with the trinity forum that i've been working on for over a year uh, Co-written with Amy Black, who's a a professor of political science at Wheaton College in Illinois, on Christianity, pluralism, and public life in the United States. We interviewed over 50 Christian leaders around the country and drew insights and wisdom from them that we put uh, into a report that we hope will be helpful for Christian ministries, for pastors, uh, for Christians who are navigating a very complex Landscape in this country i 'll say I also hope that the report, which was made possible through the generosity of the democracy fund, uh, I hope the report will be of aid to public leaders, journalists uh, elected officials who are, are are looking for positive ways that Christianity can contribute and play a role in a pluralistic uh, society and so would urge people to check out that report. You can go to ttf.org slash reports, and and hopefully uh, it, it's it's useful uh, useful to you. There's a op-ed for the Religion News Service that came out just recently with the title, The Stories We Tell About Our Country and Our Faith Matter, uh, and that's an op-ed from Amy and I about the report. So again, would urge you to check that out. All right, as we look ahead at the race that is now basically down, and I say basically because Tulsi Gabbard is still in this race, Uh, (laughs) but basically down to Biden and Sanders, Uh, you know, what what lies ahead of us? Well, concretely, what lies ahead of us is... uh, uh, on Tuesday, we have six states voting, and that includes Idaho, Michigan, Mississippi, Missouri, uh, North Dakota, and Washington. Then we basically have elections every week. The week after is Florida uh, and some other states. The week after that, Georgia, uh, Ohio's coming up. We get into April. Pennsylvania, you know, if Biden doesn't end this thing in Florida, we we're set up for a critical, critical showdown in Pennsylvania, which is basically what we've what we've had in 2008 and 2016. Pennsylvania was critical when it was Hillary uh, uh, Hillary Clinton versus Barack Obama. It's a pretty important state again uh, when it was uh, Hillary Clinton and Bernie. Sanders. And so a lot to sort of anticipate. But again, it's these major blocks or, or, or the smaller blocks of significant states where we just have a you know handful of states maximum voting every week from now through the end of the primary, which uh, the, the delegates are going to continue to rack up. We do have some debates. There will be a debate in March. And if we need it, a debate in April. And we'll just have to see how things play out. Now, look, I'm not going to make um, as precise predictions for uh, this coming Tuesday. I mean, I, I do think Michigan is and Missouri are going to be the true sort of bellwethers here. We expect Biden to do well in Mississippi. Bernie's basically, he was supposed to do an event in Jackson, Mississippi, basically canceled that event. He's basically ceded the state. Uh, To Biden, expect Bernie to do well in Washington. Uh, He trounced Hillary Clinton in the state in 2016, though that was only that was a caucus. This uh, Washington has uh, since switched to a primary. If Bernie doesn't win Washington, you know, if if Biden cleans up here um, in in this week, then it really heightens the chance that Biden could functionally finish this race uh, in Florida. Uh, the following week, uh, but Bernie performs strong in Washington. If he holds it close in Michigan and Missouri, then you know we better hunker down for a fight that goes um, to to April, uh, especially barring Biden. You know, cleaning Sanders' clock in Florida. You know, before we move on, you know, I do want to. A lot of people didn't see Biden's performance in South Carolina and Super Tuesday coming. And now those same people are acting like the race is over. I'm getting a lot of like predictions for who Biden should pick as a running mate coming up on my Twitter timeline. And look, this this race is not over. <laughs> I, I can't emphasize that enough. <laughs> um So I want to talk a bit about Bernie's. Potential upside, some advantages that Bernie might have going into this stretch. And his team has raised the possibility. And I was skeptical at first, but I looked into it and thought, well, you know, in part, they're able to make the claim because we don't have too much evidence for it. But the, the, the bit of evidence we do have seems to hold up. And basically they've suggested, look, uh, Biden's strength with the black vote is primarily in the South. And that once this race uh or, or in states that are outside of the South, for instance, when we get to the Rust Belt, when we get to states like Michigan, so Michigan, you know, is gonna test this theory really soon. The Bernie camp is saying they're gonna perform better. Now there is some evidence for this. I think Biden won the black vote in California by Twenty one or twenty two points in Minnesota, it was only ten points, um, and so there is there is again some evidence for the the claim that his huge advantage among black voters is uh, something that won't hold up as much like outside of the South. So so that's that's interesting. If, if Biden can narrow, uh, it, it, I'm sorry, if Bernie can narrow Biden's advantage with black voters particularly when we get to, like, New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Illinois. You know, interesting to see how Florida fits in that. And I haven't seen the Bernie camp make any specific claims around the black vote in Florida. Um, if if they think, uh... You know, Florida is a part of Biden's stronghold, or if they'll make a play for black voters in, in Florida, that, that is all going to be interesting to watch. S- second interesting factors that might help Bernie in this next stretch is he has a clear, undeniable advantage with Hispanic voters that we've seen so far. Now, again, I can't sort of go back to this conversation enough. Reverend Salguero was very helpful in reminding us. The Hispanic vote is different in different regions of the country. It's different depending on the national uh, origin or ethnicity of uh, uh, of the Hispanic population in a given state. Uh, it's different. Uh, it uh, the length of time. If it's a um, if we're talking about first generation. Uh, Hispanic voters or third generation. That impacts uh, things quite a bit. But to this point, we've seen Bernie be really successful. And I think that there's some merit to this, that it's about the way his campaign has approached the Hispanic community. And so if that holds up, that can bode well. A lot of states with significant Hispanic population have voted already, but we do have you know, Illinois again, Florida obviously. Uh, Ohio has significant uh, significant Hispanic population, uh, and so that that's really going to be something to to watch for. And then the third, I mean, you heard me rattle off two thousand eight, two thousand sixteen, right? Two thousand eight, Obama Clinton, twenty sixteen, Clinton Sanders. Twenty Twenty Sanders by Bi- Sanders has been here before, and th- that's a real advantage. Now Biden has an incredible team, and his, Biden's team has been here before. He has people on his team who have been here before. Uh, but there is something to the Bernie himself being in this moment, having had f- you know f- four years, three and a half years to reflect on what went wrong in his campaign against Hillary, why he wasn't able to go over the top. And he's going to have the ability to do against Biden what he wished he would have done against Clinton. And to be able to have that kind of trial and error, to be able to to revisit, I mean, just think about in your own life, if you could revisit a scenario and play it out differently, like, you'd probably do better the second time around. (laughs) Uh, And so... I I see that as an advantage. To be clear, I think Biden is, in my opinion, a clear front runner. In other words, the the dynamics of this race have to change in order for Bernie to have a chance. This can't just be on cruise control. That is why you know, as we talked about last week, you know, the fact that there wasn't a debate, that there wasn't a significant media moment between South Carolina and Super Tuesday was critical because. Biden was on that trajectory. Well, he's still on that trajectory. You could tell the Bernie camp is ramping up. You could tell the Bernie campaign and his supporters are, uh, especially on digital social media, uh, are training their sights on Biden in a way that they uh, hadn't, but probably wish that they had prior to Super Tuesday um, and certainly prior to South Carolina. But they're doing that now, and we'll have to see what effect it, it makes. We might see early signs. You know, that's what I'll be looking for tomorrow. I expect Biden to uh, extend his uh, delegate lead, but I'll be looking for signs that the Bernie campaign is finding an effective counter to to, to the Biden campaign, and we'll obviously unpack uh, the results uh, for for you. Um, on next week's episode. Uh, Don't forget, we do have a debate on March 15th, so we'll probably record the episode after that debate uh, and try and uh, get the episode out on Monday evening or Tuesday before the important states that are going uh, at that time. All right, one of the states that's voting on Tuesday, this Tuesday, uh, March 10th, is Michigan. Uh, Michigan, there have been other states that have voted with significant Muslim populations, Minnesota and Virginia in particular, but others as well. Uh, Michigan is a state with a significant Muslim population. I thought it would be a, a wonderful opportunity to bring on a friend and someone who understands faith and politics broadly, but also given her Position at Claremont, given her history of peacemaking and public involvement, her work during the Obama administration understands uh, Muslims in public life uh, really well. And so uh, we're going to have on as our guest Najiba Saeed. I'll, I'll do a full introduction of her uh, after this break. But uh, look, I cut my remarks a bit short. Because I wanted you to hear the full conversation uh, with Najiba. And so after the break, I'll introduce uh, her and then we'll get to, uh, we'll get right to it. This is the Faith 2020 podcast. <laughs> I am so excited to introduce to you Najiba Saeed. Najiba is Associate Professor of Interreligious Education at the Claremont School of Theology and Director of the Center for Global Peacebuilding. Uh, she has won. Uh, uh, Awards recognized as a leader in peacebuilding and social justice uh, based research. She received twice uh, the John Anson Ford Award for reducing violence in schools and in the area of interracial uh, gang conflicts and was named Southern California Mediation Association's Peacemaker of the Year in 2007. Um, She is someone that a lot of folks uh, look to for her scholarship but also, she's someone who um, brings the scholarship uh, down to, to, to the ground with the work that she does, which is just a wonderful thing to see. Um, uh, she is uh, one of the leading Muslim voices in public life. I'm excited to have her on to talk about faith, 2020, how Muslims and we'll hear in a way that is reminiscent, I think, of the conversation with Gabe Salguero and is really, you know, one of the lessons I I hope comes through in this podcast is that you can't talk about any faith community in a sort of singular, simple way. That whether we're talking about Catholics, whether we're talking about evangelicals, whether we're talking about Muslims, there is no single one Catholic vote. There is no single one Muslim vote. But we're gonna impa- uh, we're gonna unpack some of that. Najiba, she's going to help us understand the kinds of motivations and issues mo- motivating um, uh, Muslim voters. And I'm just so thankful for her for the wisdom she brings in this conversation. Friends, Najiba Saeed, this is the Faith 2020 podcast. Hi, Najiba. So glad to have you with us on the Faith 2020 podcast. How are you?
1: I'm doing great. How are you doing today, Michael?
0: Doing very well. It's a it's a, a busy season. We we uh, you know it feels like Super Tuesday was you know months ago, and it was not even a week ago. And then of course uh, we have more uh, more states up to vote uh, this week, so we're just trying to stay up on all of it. And I'm so glad that you could uh, come on and, and serve as a, a, a guest for. For this episode, and kind of before we jump in, would love for you to just um, just share a bit about it, your 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 background, how you got involved in sort of faith, politics, public life, um, and, and then we'll we'll kind of we'll kind of go from there.
1: Sure. Um, I'm actually trained as a lawyer and after law school came to Los Angeles and worked at various organizations that did conflict resolution, mediation, and restorative justice in the courts and in communities and schools. So jumping off of those sort of that 10 years of work with communities around the world um, in conflict, faith was always a part of that component. And Very often, we think of religion as a cause of conflict. I was really blessed to be in spaces and work with people who also believe that religion could be um, really a force for resolution, for reconciliation, and building bridges. So, having done that work practically in conflicts around the world, I became a professor in 2010 at Claremont School of Theology, United Methodist Seminary, and was their first Muslim professor. And have had really the honor and pleasure of teaching um, in the field of what's called interreligious education and have doctoral students and master's students, uh, many of whom are studying to be imams, the majority of them who are going to be pastors in different denominations, as well as PhD students that study the intersection of religion, politics, peacemaking, and um, really religion in the public square and how it's utilized both in rhetoric as well as in in um, in in the political realm around conversations that bring us together.
0: F- First, it's been such fun to see Claremont and and see how Claremont's developed and uh, a lot of energy there and a lot of uh, sort of experimentation there and it's been fun to see uh, see see that work develop. I was excited to uh, w- when when uh, you came on board there, but but I I do want to pick up. Uh, kind of where you just left off, which is kind of a general question before we get into sort of the the state of the race now. But at, just as you've looked at the at the entire presidential race so far, is, is there anything that really sticks out to you about uh, how how religion has played a role?
1: You know, I think that's an excellent question, and I think one of the things that I've really been focusing on are is the limitation of the language that we utilize around faith and religion as really emanating from a pretty Christian origin. So yeah. for instance, people are always using the word religious left. And we know, <laughs> <according>, <laughs> we know according to the work of Ayers and Hofstetter and others that actually for Muslims, the more often that they attend a mosque, the more likely they are to participate politically. They call yeah. the mosque a religious resource that actually promotes political engagement. So the Mm -hmm. idea that one would be more religious and more politically engaged doesn't always fit with the language around progressive and conservative that are sort of taken from the public square and then pasted onto the Muslim community in the United States. So my observations uh, really, I would say, revolve around this idea that we have to be able to talk about religion but also to think of the way that religion and politics manifest within the Muslim space may not always reflect the language, the patterns, or the history um, as they do in Christian spaces. So I think we're really challenged to begin to talk about religions in politics, not just one religion or the religious left or the religious right or the conservative or progressive religious communities, because I don't think that those, um, that taxonomy maps onto the Muslim community uh, effectively.
0: Th- that's so interesting. I have a, I have a, a friend who makes a, what what I think is a similar insight, which is the, the mainstream praise, particularly from non-Muslims for the quote unquote moderate Muslim uh, and sort of how, how do we have uh you, you know uh, how, how do we support moderate muslims and uh m- my friend would say to me you know how w- how would you like for someone to call you a luke- lukewarm christian uh you know, you, you know the these terms that we uh, don't don't necessarily translate I, I think that's i think that's uh i think that's really helpful let let me ask you i i know it's a it's a big question my basic understanding is that 21st century what, when we speak in sort of partisan terms, that 21st century um, Muslim political uh, alliances um, have looked quite different than they had in the past, and it sort of gets to that how how the conservative progressive labels don't necessarily apply so 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 neatly on the Muslim community to an extent where pre 2000, uh, Republicans identified Muslims as, if not a part of their base, certainly um gettable constituency. And then, of course, we, we've seen great antagonism towards the Muslim community from the current president uh, and other Republican leaders. C- can you just talk a little bit about how Muslims are finding themselves in this in this current political environment?
1: Absolutely. And I think you highlight um, one of the challenges, not just the analysis around utilizing uh, terminology that puts people into boxes of conservative or liberal from the political sphere into the religious. We based this challenge, Patterson, Gasim and Choi, in their study, looked at Muslims from the 2000 to the 2004 election and it's been interesting because I've heard Muslims be accused, for instance, of only being concerned of the foreign, being concerned in terms of foreign policy on the Israel Palestine issue. And what they actually found in their study, as well as others, is that it was the Iraq War that changed uh, much of the political affiliation for immigrant mm. Muslims. So it wasn't it wasn't actually. That is certainly one issue of importance to some Muslims in terms of Palestine. Um, and there are many other foreign policy issues that are at the table. And in fact, we see in this note in history um, uh, quite a significant shift uh, from the Republican to the Democratic Party. So I think that's important because there are so many different driving factors. And uh, we also know, for instance, uh, the Patriot Act. And others, according to Ayers and Hofstetter, you would think that it would make people become disengaged politically. But actually, according to them, Muslims became more engaged politically because they felt uh, they felt threatened uh, in terms of liberties. So and then as they yeah, and they point out as well, I just wanted to I think it's you know fascinating that the Muslim community in the United States is one of the most ethnically and racially diverse you know, uh, Hofstetter and Ayers in their study talk about the fact that pre 9-11, the immigrant Muslim community and their political participation really went up after 9-11 because of many of the reasons that they we stated, although they have been politically involved before. But they also point out, for instance, the African-American community, the Muslim community, which is a significant portion of the American Muslim population, as well as a significant portion of the registered Voter population that they have always, um, according to Ayers and Hofstadter, had high levels of political participation. So, this is not a new phenomenon to the community, but as you break down the numbers, you have to consider which Muslims are you talking about, what is their background, what is their history, um, and to really ensure that the driving force in the conversation around issues is often. Looked at from a foreign policy lens, but if you look at the diversity of the community, it's quite um, it's quite broad and quite deep.
0: Yeah, and you know, I, I want to get to sort of the um, you know this next stretch of the presidential race, but because you raise it, it's such an interesting, you know, I think that's reflected in so much of of your work. I mean, I follow I follow your your activism and your speaking and your writing relatively closely, and I, I remember seeing you at a. Uh, at a uh, rally around immigration reform, I know you uh, you you think quite a bit uh, and care deeply about uh, healthcare. And so, just just talk a little bit about w- how you view the intersections of, of of if you don't mind of of, of your faith in, and and uh, sort of public oh, issues.
1: Absolutely, yeah. You know, for me, um, I think the immigration issue is 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 one that really came to fruition when the Supreme court upheld the Muslim ban. And as we know, the ban has been expanded. And so we now refer to it as the Muslim African ban because it's targeted in its first iteration, some African Muslim countries, but extended to other African nations as well, including Nigeria. So that those were some of the pivotal moments in the consciousness around the fact that it's not just foreign policy that is based on um, perhaps an anti-Muslim perspective at times, but also this affects, you know, people here. I have family in my own family. Um, I have in law, my, one of my sister-in-laws is from Yemen. So imagining that, you know, her family is now banned from traveling to the United States. And, you know, this is having a real impact on people who are in the voting population. These are not, I think sometimes when people think of foreign policy or immigration issues, they think it affects, you know, those that are trying to get into the country. But this particular... The Muslim ban um, has had a deep impact on dividing families uh, or making life very difficult for families, and in particular, you know, one of the things I appreciate about Elizabeth Warren's most recent, um, most recent public engagement with the Muslim community was looking at things like for like um, like debt and the idea of student debt and the notion that. For Muslims, it's an issue that's important, not just because it affects us and we're limited in some way, but also in a generative way. And this is where I hope the conversation for the Muslim community, uh, will we will allow for that in the public square. So when I think about the issues of overburdening families with medical debt or debt related to student uh, education That is a Muslim issue, not just because it affects Muslims, but because Muslims um, have an ethic that revolves around this idea that uh, when we engage in debt, we should not be overburdened. The idea of of debt that keeps people from being able to live out their lives, um, debt that cripples them from the capacity to to be able. You know, and it's not just me, but that should be a a value that we think about. And I, you know, I wanted to just point out here, um, as someone who is very deeply committed to religion, I can also be deeply committed to these social values. But as a Muslim, I, I often am afraid to talk about some of my commitments because what happens as soon as as soon as I think about an ethical approach as a Muslim you know, a Christian can come to the table and have their ethical approach, a Jewish person, whatever background. But as soon as a Muslim individual activates their resources for uh, their ethical approach to how we should think about money or how we should think about um, migration, then get labeled as, you know, being, being trying to advance an an agenda that is seen as problematic. So I think that is a prejudice against Muslims in the public square. And I think it, as we see more Muslims um, get into the public square, that is a question, you know, are we equally able to articulate a religious foundation for our values Certainly, religious freedom is a core value of mine so that I would not want to impose my perspective. I do think it's a resource rather than than a deficit for me to hear why, you know, and what is what is the basis for a Jewish ethical approach, a Catholic, a Catholic ethical approach a Methodist approach to all of these issues we come together and we have a conversation and then, um, you know, we build together. And for those who have no religious affiliation at all, that's also an important component. But I just wanted to point that out in this time of, of heightened Islamophobia, is it safe to talk about your ethics as a Muslim and as a voter? You know, how do we, how do we bring our faith into this public square without being accused? Unlike other traditions who are allowed to do that, how are we able to bring it into this conversation?
0: Yes, we could, uh, uh, we may have to find another forum because we could go on a long, like academic wonky sort of, but I think what you just said is so critically important. And if you believe as, as I do that sort of in the post-World War II era, our public conversations about moral knowledge has sort of atrophied. And what I'm particularly hopeful about is that if we're able to open up the public square for people to enter and speak as they are from the values that they stand on and that they hold, what it does is it opens up the space for all of us to to do so. Because um, I think <laughs> you, like I, I've seen um, people in positions of power will say, well, do you know what? you let sort of this religion stuff sort of get in. It gets very tricky. So the easiest thing to do is just shut off all uh, ethical valuations and let's just talk about sort of best practices and what's evidence-based. And they cut off an entire sort of sector of whole, whole realm of of knowledge that's been brought to bear on the world's challenges for millennia, um, and so I'm. I, I want to affirm both your identification that Muslims currently don't feel, and I think rightly, rightly so, in terms of the prejudice that they face, sort of the ability to identify as Muslim and and to sort of identify their politics as being based, at least in part, in their in their faith. I think that's one concern. Uh, concern of mine in addition to that has been just the absence of moral argumentation in public life at all. And, and, and I think, you know, but the, the, these challenges go hand in hand.
1: Yeah. And I think, so. I think part of it is, you know, this idea of religious imagination and moral yes, 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 yes. being deeply connected so that Uh, when I teach my students around the topic, uh, around these topics, you know, one of the things I try to get across is we live in a time where, you know, our religious traditions hundreds of years ago would do competitive theology, trying to, you know, I'm better than you and you're better than, you know, and and we would get interpretation of the stories. And I often tell my students, we live in a time of cooperative theology where each of us and our own traditions and communities build solutions for problems. You know, one of my students, my doctoral students, he is an imam in South Central Los Angeles in a predominantly and historically African American mosque. And he has developed this restorative justice process for his students in the Muslim school where they're doing restorative justice with one another instead of uh retributive justice, which means the students, the second and fourth graders, get together once a week and it's based on their Muslim tradition. And it's based on their community and um, history of the African-American as well as African traditions present in the community. And now the adults have been asking to do restorative justice circles. So how do I take this, you know, wonderful young second, um, his father was an imam too, how do I take not just this tradition, but this vibrant community that's been created where violence is abated, where people are living and building intentionally, what value does he bring as a leader, uh, a religious leader? So the cooperative theo- theology question isn't about him trying to let go of that, but to say, hey, here's right, a model right, right. That works, right? And then the church on the street has a model that works. So the cooperative piece is not in creating the theology, but in bringing our unique, religious histories, tradition, but even more so just our practices. You know, like you, some of the best uh, people that solve problems, you know, in our communities are faith leaders, you know, and how do we get together and think through maybe there's something that um, Imam Jihad Zafir that I'm talking about at um, Islam, maybe he's doing something that is profoundly useful somewhere else. But being able to bring his full self, his full community, both religious as well as cultural and historical community to the table without negating any of that and saying, what can we learn from one another and witness with one another? Because we have dire problems. I live in Los Angeles and our issue around unsheltered families. I mean, we have people living in cars, <laughs> you know, this, this is the reality. So to me, religion and politics is one of the questions is, well, it's not just how will you vote, but how will we get together and have public, private, and um, government partnerships to solve these issues? Because clearly what is happening is is, is not enough. We all need one another.
0: Yeah. I You, you know I could not agree more. We had the chance to work uh, on some of these issues when I was at the White House. I, I almost hate to move the conversation where I'm going to move it. But, but, uh, (laughs) but you're right. How, how, how will you, how will you vote is not everything, but uh, for uh, the state of Michigan and five other States uh, this, this Tuesday, it is the question or at least one of them. (laughs) So, uh, so I, you know, we were talking before the show, obviously Michigan isn't the first state with a sizable, Muslim population, uh, to vote, uh, I, th- I think principally of, of Minnesota and, uh, and Virginia, but there are, there are others, but, um, Michigan it is, uh, it is, a a major center, uh, for for Muslims, they have the potential to, to play a, a key role. I think many people look at Michigan and think potentially it'll be the closest state out of the six. And so would love to just get a sense from you of sort of as you work uh, with, and as you're in touch with so many Muslim leaders across the country, how are, how are they looking at, in particular, you know, this democratic primary Primary, especially now that we're down to Biden and Sanders.
1: Absolutely, I mean, I think you know, and the Muslim. I mean, back in two thousand and sixteen, the Voice of America reported that there were more than a more than one million Muslim uh, Muslim individuals registered to vote, and um, voter turnout, according to multiple sources, has only been going up. So I do think Muslims continue, and as I mentioned earlier, we have you know that we have Muslims of South Asian background, Arab background, Iranian Americans, uh, we have Africans, and uh, as we mentioned, black Muslims, you know, very substantial populations in different parts of the country. So that's another way we really have to regionally analyze the Muslim vote where we are. And you know, Middle East. I just had an article that came out that reported probably you know these numbers we don't know until the end of this whole campaign, but you know the ma- vast majority or the numbers for Bernie Sanders as high as above fifty percent of the overall Muslim vote so far, as they see it. Um, but you know, I, I one thing I have a concern about in reading the reports around the Muslim vote. Um, you know, it's, I have not seen it in this election yet. It has happened in the past. I haven't yet seen it broken down by ethnic, racial, um, and other uh, sort of indicators of background, because I don't know if the above 50% represents all Muslims or represents immigrant community or parts of the immigrant community. The same report um, said that 5% or so uh, was going to Warren but i you know i don't know then I, I don't have the demographic breakdown yet and i would just i think that that's really important even as you're looking at Michigan when we say the muslim vote to keep in mind that it isn't going to be a uniform vote even though even even though the numbers may look like they're going particularly to one candidate we don't until it's broken down it could be that that 5% you know might be overwhelmingly of one background or another so I, I'm pointing that out, I think I think that that's we just have to be careful to bring in all of the other factors, uh, you know, particularly, as I mentioned, um, we have different levels of historical political participation, um, African-American Muslim communities having had a long history of participation in the Democratic Party in particular, as I mentioned earlier, the, Im- the immigrant Muslim community, um, a portion uh, switched uh, around the Iraq war issue. So different communities are already historically engaged with different parties. Uh, so we, I think we just have to be very careful to not make an, you know, not to make an assumption that every Muslim you've, you meet would have voted for who you thought they would have voted.
0: Right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. so,
1: you know, there are still, there are still some Republican Muslims and, um, Pew estimates that um, it actually from 2007, it was 11%. And in 2017, that percentage went up to 13%. So there are, you know, the Muslim community demographically is overwhelmingly still above 60% Democratic, but there is there, you know, there are a portion that are Republican. So I just yeah. I wanted to point that out. Um Some of the factors that we see that make a difference, I think, for both voter registration, unfortunately, as I mentioned earlier, um, Ayers and Hofstadter talked about policies that you think would alienate Muslims that are targeting Muslims, that that actually increased uh, political participation. So unfortunately, as Islamophobia rises... (laughs) Um, the unfortunate part of this, you know, is that Islamophobia exists and yet it seems right. Right, it's right, 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 right. Yeah,
0: yeah, the <laughs> civic participation is, is good. It, it, if only it could happen. Yeah, right. <laughs> so
1: that's a, that's, I mean, that's fascinating, that is a fascinating finding, I think, because yes. imagine that, you know, as policy, it seems like your voting may not actually be working, but the point right. to be that it's not working, but I think in some ways the galvanizing is the targeting of Muslims and the singling out of Muslims for certain policies. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, there are so many issues that could be construed as Muslim. Um, It doesn't have to be just that it affects one part of the Muslim community, but mass incarceration, we see uh, groups like Believer's Bailout that have developed that are really looking at mass incarceration because the percentage of Muslims in prison is quite high Muslims are overrepresented in the prison system and so you know what is construed as a Muslim issue really has to be I would say interrogated mm-hmm. uh, first at first with the idea of whom it affects people will often consider Muslims and in the media talk about it as an immigrant community and so we have to look at the vast numbers and you um, types of communities that are affected by issues but also from an ethical perspective Muslims may extend something into a muslim issue whether or not it affects their communities mm. and you know i think the other thing that i wanted to mention here is that we see for the first time i've been voting since 9 19- i i've been voting since 19 19- 90. (laughs) I'm afraid to give this (laughs) 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 sometime
0: sometime in the 20th (laughs) century.
1: (laughs) I've been voting since the late 90s. I've always voted, um, you know, in with the Democratic Party, so I didn't have that shift after 9 11. I was already, yeah, I went to college in North Carolina. i was going to point out we see Muslims being, um, in charge, if not drivers, in some of the Democratic political campaigns so uh Bernie Sanders's campaign uh director is Muslim. He has not just surrogates but one full time staff member, if not more, dedicated to Muslim outreach. uh we see Aram Ali and Warren in the Warren campaign, so you know, and those are just a few and I think that grew out of frankly there were many Muslims involved in the Obama campaign yep. so you know, not the Obama campaign, sorry, the Obama administration. So you see this rise of Muslim professionals who were in an administration, and now many Muslim professionals who are running campaigns. And this is all over the country. So I think that that's a really important um, factor to keep in mind around Muslim registration. And let's say you're running a political campaign you know, it's very effective to have Muslim staffers. We're seeing that that makes a huge difference, that you have multiple faces of your campaign that can relate to the Muslim community. And so many Muslims are running for office and many are winning in their local races. So all of these factors in the last, I would I would sort of put that more in the last decade, um, even in the last five years, it's a different ballgame for the Muslim community.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's all very helpful uh, insight. A- a- as you as you look um, to well, well, first, can you tell us about uh, the Muslim community in in Michigan, particularly in in Dearborn? Um, is it is there diversity e- even within the Dearborn community, or does that represent a particular slice of the Muslim world in, in, uh, in in Dearborn.
1: I mean, certainly you have one, you know, a very, very large Arab American population concentrated in Michigan. You also have a historically African American Muslim population, um, throughout Detroit and other parts of Michigan. So you have a diversity of communities. You have a South Asian Muslim population present there as well. I do think that, um, all over the all over the country, wherever you have large concentrations of Muslims, whether it be New York, Los Angeles, I think that the internal diversity of the community and the historical um, kind of nature of that community is that you know one of the unique things about Dearborn and Michigan and uh, Detroit is that these are communities that have been there for a significant portion of time. So, um, whereas you might see, for instance, um, in looking at Muslim communities where refugees have been recently resettled, I was recently in Oregon and took my students to a mosque, um, to visit a mosque, my Christian students. And, you know, the, the, when we even talk about immigration, we have to think about, are these recently migrated communities? Are these communities right. with full voting status? Are these communities with citizenship? Are these communities that are under more of a, they have a fragility around their their status? So I yeah. do think that historically that you see both, you know, I'm not an expert in Michigan.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: That is a very, it's a mature community. It's a yeah. multi-generational both if you look at the South Asian um, and the Arab community, I'm here speaking about the immigrant community. Certainly, as we talked about earlier for the African American Muslim community as the research bears out in history, that is you know a multi-generational presence of of Muslims that have been um, in 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 Michigan. So that's you know, those generations predate the immigrant community. But I wanted to point that out because I think it shows a political engagement and compa- and capacity for savviness um, that may not exist in every in every Muslim community. Some some communities are just demographically smaller, demographically far more um, disparate, and so it helps to have a concentration not just of Muslims but also a concentration of particular ethnic and uh, linguistic and religious. That all together that makes Michigan very unique I would say but not it's not the only space like that we can think of Minnesota we can think about um, other parts of the of the country New Jersey uh, New York where you have a concentration and in particular that they're living within districts and they're living within a a sort of the spatialization of the community is that they're living close to one another. So that creates, you know, political power, political engagement with um, the way that politics and political spheres are built in the United States. We build them around um, concentrations of population. So where you have that, you will see uh, the rise of political power from the base um, and local communities. And that's why I think it's not a surprise that our um, you know, our, the election of, of Muslim women into Congress has been from the Midwest. Minnesota,
0: Michigan. Yeah. You just named it.
1: (laughs) so. So it's the, the factors one looks at a base that is some, you know, has, has developed. Um, uh, I would say it's quite the Somali American community, uh, while more recently migrated than some of the other Immigrant communities I just mentioned has, you know, been organized, has developed um, their capacity to engage and be politically, uh, politically involved. And so it's, you know, it's really, but it is, it does, in an interesting way, the, the capacity to engage is built around these concentrations of communities, um, so I, I just wanted to point that out as well, that you have some of the alchemy or the factors and variables that come together in Michigan make for the Muslim voice. And I wanted to, as we said earlier, there isn't one Muslim vote or one Muslim voice. Um, we need to do better analysis of this. We need to do a better analysis of the breakdown of how people are voting um, based on multiple factors.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Look, I love talking with you. I just have one more question, sure. and we want to be respectful of, of your time. And that's just, you know, what is what is your what is your hope? Maybe ten years from now, twenty years from now, uh, when it comes to uh, uh, American uh, Muslim political participation, kind of what would the landscape look like? Uh, not. Not so much. uh, Obviously, there are policies that, um, you you know, uh, that that we might want to see change. But just in terms of sort of political participation, what what would your ideal future of uh, Muslim political participation look like?
1: Well, I think I think um, there are a couple of things. One of them is I would hope that the conditions would change so that the participation wasn't based just on fear and fragility of the community's existence. Mm. Um, I, I certainly, as I mentioned, you know, there are many Muslim communities that have historically been well-established in many cities. I mean, Chicago is another great place or case study to consider. I, I, I get, you know, I, I, I do think that, um, I would hope that, and this is my hope for just the political climate overall changing so that Muslims are engaged in conversations from a generative standpoint, not just from this reality of existential um, threats to whether it's migration, whether as we talked about mass incarceration, you know, these 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 uh, various factors in which when combined religious identity, when combined or elided um, with, with ethnic, racial, and other background create for many Muslim communities a very, you know a very burdened existence a very a very difficult existence because of because of how uh, structural racism or other forms impact the community from very many different factors and levels so i'm you know i'm trying to cover a lot of ground here and a lot of Yeah. <laughs> I would
0: hope that
1: i would hope that that would be uh i would hope that that would be a condition in which in which muslims were able to to speak for what they want to see for a future and not just you know here I am at the edge of this society and I'm yes. looking to get you know I'm looking in like I'm still looking in. I would hope that we were in a place and this I think can't fall just the burden doesn't fall on the Muslim community alone for activism and engagement, but it falls on you know frankly um, presidential uh, campaigns reaching out to the Muslim community before before you're about to vote you know i mean I, that would be the peak of some of these campaigns is that there was you know you have to build those relationships with the muslim community and they have to be seen as integral you know not just demographically not just because it's effective but if if you were seen as add-ons and we are seen as afterthoughts you know that that that's re- that communities remember that you know they that's remember right.
0: And they they hear that. I, I think often we think like like no one notices these things, but no, people are paying attention to how you structure your campaign and where you're going when you visit uh, when you visit Michigan and and Minnesota and and who you're hiring. I think it's all all integral, as you said.
1: And um, the Muslim community at one point, there were some Muslims, not all just some that were excited to get the photograph with the elected official. But I would say there are a lot of communities that have, you know, when we talk about also, second, third generation immigrants and others who, um, you know, from the Latinx community, by the way, is the fastest growing Muslim community in the United States. They. We're above 10% um some scholars say you know up to 13 or 14 13% of the american muslim population so think about places in texas and los angeles yes yes yes, yes. Like this is this is this this is a community that is not on the decline and that is right. a whole factor i think michael that's really important to keep in mind is very often when you're talking about the religious left Progressive Christians, the conversation, teaching at an institution from the mainline.
0: <laughs> yes, the
1: language yeah. is the community in decline. This is a group right. that's going down. And really, for many, you know, at this point in history, as all American religions peak and then you know decline and peak and decline, at this moment, we're not talking about a group of, we're not talking about a religious community that is 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 shrinking. We're talking about a religious community that is continuing to grow. And as I mentioned, for instance, over generations, building institutions like Imam Jihad, Safir in South Central Los Angeles, you know, these are institutions that are growing in importance, not just by the way, you know, his institution is benefiting um, South Central Los Angeles. There are coming to a school that are not Muslim because they see there is so much value to this institution that it's bringing building in the community. So, you know, um, the Muslim community doesn't exist in a vacuum unto itself. We are building in partnership, or even just building and others are coming and, 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 and joining um, because they see the values at the table.
0: Gee, but I can't thank you enough for this wonderful interview you're sending uh, us on to uh, Michigan. And and really just, uh, I think people will hear this interview and look back uh, at, at how the primary has unfolded differently. And hopefully it'll help folks see things more clearly uh, as as we, head, uh, as we head on deeper into 2020. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Absolutely. Well, it's such an honor and pleasure to be able to have this conversation with an erudite host like yourself.
0: I really appreciate it. Thanks, Najiba. All right. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Najiba. Uh, hope that you continue to stay in touch with me uh, throughout the week on Twitter. And again, that's Michael R. Ware. And then you could go to my Substack account where on Super Tuesday, we did a whole thread all night long as the returns um as the returns came in uh and we'll continue to provide analysis and then i want to want to recommend that you follow najiba on twitter uh, just najiba Saeed is is her hold, So just her her name would really recommend that you you touch base with her and, and stay up on the on the good work she's doing i know that she has some exciting work coming down the pipe and she's one of the one of the voices i really listen to in this space all right folks enjoy election returns coming in re- re- remember take a break from from this stuff you know it's important to follow the news important you know who becomes president matters again we try and do this podcast for you so that for those of you who don't have or don't want to spend a lot of time following all this that this could be your sort of one-stop shop to uh thinking about the 20, 2020 presidential race and then you could sort of allow that to inform uh what you do throughout the week but you don't always have to be refreshing poll numbers and all that kind of stuff we just want to Uh, help you make it through the season more informed, more empowered, uh, less anxious. Wouldn't that be a good thing? All right. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Ware. Thank you so much for joining us. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys, you know? A pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just These Guys, you know?